clear. This is not about taking away anyone's guns. It's about not about vilifying gun owners. In fact, we believe we should be treating responsible gun owners as an example of how every gun owner should behave. I respect the culture and the tradition and the concerns of lawful gun owners. And happy Saturday and welcome to The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, June 4th, 2022. And we're so happy you decided to spend some time with us today. Uh, we got a, a packed show uh, in the intro. Uh, you saw the president of the United States, Joe Biden, uh, talking about Uvalde, Texas. Uh, but I need somebody to talk to. So let's talk to Val Atkinson. Hey, Val. Welcome back to the deal. Good morning. How are you? Well, you know, Val, I would be better if... Every time I turned on the TV, there wasn't another mass shooting. Uh, you know, Tulsa this week, uh, Uvalde last week, uh, Buffalo the week before. But in reality, Val, I, I did some look in the Washington Post has a really good website about mass shootings. And there's a couple other places where you can get that data. And it turns out that there's almost a mass shooting every day in the United States. It's just that we just don't see it on TV. And... When you get those mass shootings like we had in Uvalde, for example, of uh, little babies, third and fourth graders, what the hell, Val? Uh, what, 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 what are we saying here uh, that we, I mean, after Sandy Hook, nothing happened. AR-15 ban on assault weapons expired in, in, Clearly, in the last three big ones that I just mentioned, Tulsa, Uvalde, and Buffalo, they all had AR-15-style rifles that, that would have been banned normally. Where are we going with this? I know I asked you this last week, and I thought we had, we had solved the problem, but apparently we did not. Well, uh, as we talked about earlier, Ed, uh, it's difficult to resolve or solve a problem when you initially misdiagnose the issue. And in this case, what we're talking about, in any problem-solving model that you put out there, the first step in that paradigm is always to correctly define the problem. That's where we are off. The problem is not that people need weapons uh, because the Second Amendment gives it to them, but they, do, they need to protect their homes and that kind of thing. Or they love to hunt. That ain't why they want weapons. And that's why we are misdiagnosing the problem and misapplying solutions, therefore. What the, uh, most Americans have weapons for is just in case we dissolve into a race war or a cultural, or some kind of revolutionary mess that turns violent. That's why they want these guns. And that's why many industrialized countries that we consider to be our equals, 
They don't have this problem. They don't have these numbers of guns because they don't have the culture and the ethnic mix that we have at the levels that we have. There's not one European country that's on the verge of becoming a minority in that particular country, that the white people are on the verge of becoming the minority. It doesn't work that way. So they don't have that fear. We do have that fear here in America. That's driving the engine on the problem with guns. And until we face that and realize it, we'll never come up with a viable, decent solution to the problem. All of this stuff about the age limit, mental health, background checks, even my favorite pet, uh, the digitalization of ammunition, which I think is great, but you're still missing the target. Yeah, uh, no pun intended. Uh, in Canada, though, immediately after Uvalde, they banned these weapons. In Canada, they, they, there was no compunction about it. They said, oh, Justin Trudeau gets up there and says, we're done. None of those. Uh, forget about it. Don't bring them here. Uh, it, but I think it speaks to your point about uh, other countries in the world not having this constant fear that they're going to be overtaken. Uh, United States is a really unique uh, place. And again, we talk about history a lot here. The history of the United States is of a place where there was functioning democracies because those Native American tribes were democratic. They, they had leaders. They had governments, uh, they had relationships with other entities, other nations within the continental United States. And the white people who came over from Europe said, that is not good enough. We're going to, we're going to kill all of you, take your land. Then we're going to bring people here to work and make them work for no compensation. And we don't want any repercussions for it. So the long way to that, where I want to get Val is, is it because of our fear also of divine retribution? I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, especially white people's mind, is that we got to pay for this one day, what we have done. Uh, Malcolm X would, it, it said the chickens have come home to roost when, when Kennedy was assassinated. Is it is it some of that too where uh, obviously it's the palpable fear that they have that they may be overrun, but also that they would be overrun and they got a price to pay for the way they've treated people. Yes, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. That That's the reason. Uh, and that's partially the reason, Ed, why we can't even entertain the notion of some sort of truth and reconciliation project. Because to me, that's the first step. That is the very first step you cannot get to ultimate peace in your own land without first going through truth and reconciliation. White people have to admit that, no, I didn't own slaves. Uh, nobody in my family may have done it, but it was done by people who looked like me. And I have a standard of living and I enjoy certain things right now because of what they did. And there are people right now who are born, there are people who are yet to be born that's gonna suffer and won't have a great opportunity in this country 
because of what my great, 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 great grandparents did. And I need to apologize for that. I need to do something and get, we need to get out of the whole, get out of our own way in trying to come up with a plan that adequately and justly compensates people for what has happened. Uh, forget about reparations and that kind of thing. You can't do it properly. It can't be done. But I think if you take that first step of truth, when you get to the whole reconciliation thing, it's more meaningful and it has more weight now. So whatever you do, you're not trying to wash away all past, all sins. You, this is just a part of the of truth and reconciliation process. And uh, white people in this country need to give that some serious thought because without that, you can have all of the, you pass all of the bills, uh, you can make all of the new laws uh, and do all of this stuff because we have a history of that, of wanting to get back to normal. What do I have to do? Pass this law, pass, uh, make that bill work uh, so they can get back to doing what they do, which is exercise white privilege. And that's what we want to get rid of. They don't understand that. You've got to get rid of that. And once you get rid of that, a lot of these other problems go away with it. Yeah, most definitely. I want to remind you, you're watching The Deal or you're listening to The Deal on one of our podcast platforms. That's either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, you name it, we're there. So if you're picking us up as audio, uh, thank you so much. Please subscribe and share with other folks. If you're watching us on the website, that's the deal with edclark.com. You can also get us on Venmo and on um, YouTube and Facebook. Man, Val, you're everywhere. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, but this platform allows us to talk about uh, some serious issues. Uh, I, I want to uh, also give a programming note. Um, uh, we just posted uh, a extended interview with uh, Professor Andrea Freeman. She was on with us last week talking about baby formula and we extended discussion of some Val and we talked about uh, not only baby formula, but milk, milk and whiteness. And uh, Professor Freeman is doing a talk at the Welcome Museum in London, England on June 9th. You don't have to be in London. You can you can sign up at the Welcome uh, website. The link is under all of our web pages so you can get the link and, and sign up for it. And, and the panel is going to talk about how uh, white people have used milk uh, as a weapon. Uh, you, uh, you ha it's a fascinating discussion, uh, and I hope you will join in on that. Uh, so Val, let's switch gears. So we we, we know the underpinnings of uh, this fear for white people. It's based in white supremacy. We know that it's clear. Um, they don't want to do anything about it. Um, these guns will proliferate. They'll tell, continue to tell this lie about the Second Amendment, right? Um, uh, one of the ways we could do something is you can outvote them. Uh, one of their, your strategies you talk about all the time, Val, is how many white people have to fall into the right bucket <laughs> to win an election. And there's an election coming up for Senate in the state of Kentucky. Uh, Rand Paul is uh, running against Charles Booker. There's an ad that uh, Charles Booker has. Charles Booker is black uh, uh, and fairly young and uh, 
can we look at this ad and then we'll talk about the ad, but we'll also talk about what, how Booker could possibly win in a place like Kentucky. The pain of our past persists to this day. In Kentucky, like many states throughout the South, lynching was a tool of terror. It was used to kill hopes for freedom. It was used to kill my ancestors. Now, in a historic victory for our Commonwealth, I have become the first black Kentuckian to receive the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate. My opponent, the very person who compared expanded health care to slavery, the person who said he would have opposed the Civil Rights Act, the person who single-handedly blocked an anti-lynching act from being federal law. The choice couldn't be clearer. Do we move forward together? Or do we let politicians like Rand Paul forever hold us back and drive us apart? In November, we will choose healing. We will choose Kentucky. So Val, the imagery in that ad is something I don't think I've ever seen before. Uh, Charles Booker has gotten some pushback from people because oh, the whole news thing is too much, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it's graphic, but it's true. Nothing in it he said that wasn't true. Uh, so let's let's go back and deconstruct the ad first, Val. As a uh, professor of media politics, what do you think about the construction of the ad and what the message it conveys and whether or not you think it's an effective message? It is highly effective. Uh, one of the things you want to do in these types of ads uh, from a political standpoint uh, is to appeal uh, to your audience in several ways. Uh, the most, the first way that people think about is auditory. And we want to make sure all of the words are right and we're touching all, on all the key points and that sort of thing. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in that we forget about the visual and which has more impact than the auditory actually to more people. And this is what uh, the Booker campaign has done. Uh, he's talking about what happened to his ancestors. Uh, and he's talking about the fact that Rand Paul voted against a bill that would outlaw lynchings. But through it all, you see a black man in coat and tie with a noose around his neck and all kinds of thoughts run through your mind. You can't escape the fact that in black and white images, real steel photographs that we see from the past, you see faces like Charles Booker there and the noose being tightened and his body dangling from a rope and, you, and the reality of it all. The historical reality of it all comes back and it slaps you in the face and you understand the reality of this heinous act called lynching. I think it is very powerful. Uh, and, and I give kudos to whoever came up with that to make a point to say that we haven't escaped this terrible thing in our past and Rand Paul doesn't want to sign onto a bill that will make it illegal. 
Yeah, it's incredible. Rand Paul may be the most odious person besides Ted Cruz that's ever been in the Senate. And there's been a lot of bad people in the Senate. You can talk about Strom Thurmond. Uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, I, the, you, the list goes on. Trent Lott. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people, but but Rand Paul stands out here. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Charles Booker's prospects, though. Again, if you're, with your political science hat on, Kentucky doesn't have very good odds for a brother uh, to win a statewide office. Uh, Booker has come close in lieutenant governor race and some other things that he's been involved in. Uh, uh, but th the reality is Kentucky doesn't have a lot of black folks other than in Lexington and in, in, in around Louisville, uh, maybe Owensboro and maybe Paducah. You know, there's some pockets, but but not substantial numbers. And, and I've been in Kentucky uh, for a long time. I'm actually a Kentucky Colonel, Val. I don't know if you knew that, uh, along, along with Muhammad Ali. So I have a distinction that a lot of people don't have, but also Colonel Sanders, by the way. So uh, that, <laughs> that may tell you something about being a Kentucky Colonel. But, but on a serious note, how could Booker even cobble together some sort of coalition to get him enough votes in a place like Kentucky. Is it possible? I guess it's possible. Yeah. The, the, the target has to be uh, white voters. There, as you well uh, know, Ed, there's not enough black voters in Kentucky to sway this election one way or the other. You could have 100 percent of the black electorate to go out and vote. Turnout could be 100% and you could lose by high double digits. So you can forget about that. In every locale, what makes the black vote viable and very important is when you have a bifurcated white vote. When you have white folks that are polarized to a degree, that the vote is almost split, then black votes become very, very important. So what Booker has got to do is go in and convince enough white folks that this guy is not good for Kentucky. I'm better for Kentucky. This is why. And if he can do that and spend his time and energy on moving some of those white folks that are quasi undecided, then the black vote will count. If he spends all of his time trying to get out more of the black vote, trying to get to 100% elect, electric turnout, I think that's a waste of time and it's a bad, flawed strategy. Mm. He needs to appeal to white people that can come on his side and make the white vote closer to 50-50 and you'll have a chance. And then you have a chance, yeah. You know, Val, I hear some music in the background. I mean, it's time to take a break. When we come back, uh, we got a ton of other stuff. There's one other story I want to talk about that probably went, you know, under the radar about a guy named Abraham Bolden. He was a Secret Service agent, uh, but it ties back into history and the way black folks have been treated and, and part of the fear that white people have. And then we'll talk about the economy. We'll talk about marijuana in North Carolina being approved and the expansion of Medicare. So Medicaid, sorry. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this message. Keeping with its legacy of producing outstanding attorneys, the Rogers Firm is pleased to announce its newest associate, Attorney Ariel Chapman. 
Attorney Chapman is a former assistant DA and brings years of experience and legal excellence into his position as a proud member of the Rogers Firm. The Rogers Law Firm, a firm dedicated to justice. The Rogers Law Firm, a firm dedicated to justice at 111 Person Street, Fayetteville, North Carolina. You can call them at 910-433-0833. Micah Abraham Bolden, 87 years of age, fearing that time would run out on him in his decades-long quest to have his name cleared by presidential pardon. Yesterday, his attorney telling him that he was under consideration by President Joe Biden, but Mr. Bolden didn't know for sure until today. I got it officially today on the television. Abraham Bolden, like much of America, seeing it on the news. I'm 87 years old, and this is my last stance. Bolden from his modest Southside bungalow describing what he and many others contend was a disgraceful injustice outlined in his book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza. I went to prison. I was in prison. But I never let the prison be in me. Bolden, fighting off despair, punished, he says, for being a Secret Service whistleblower. I knew what the plan was. It was to try to declare me insane so nobody would believe me. I'm over. Welcome back to our second segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, June 4th, 2022. That's Val Atkinson. I'm Ed Clark. Uh, We're talking about stuff. And the stuff we talked about in the first segment was uh, uh, gun violence. I, I won't even say gun control valve because there's no control over guns in the United States. They're, they're rampant. There's a gun for every man, woman, child, and monkey and horse uh, in the United States. Uh, we also talked about Charles Booker. Charles Booker is running for pre- uh, for a Senate in the uh, state of Kentucky against Rand Paul. Uh, he uh, had a ad with a noose around his neck. Uh, some white folks have been fixated on the fact that he had the noose around his neck instead of looking at the content of the ad valve, which was uh, Rand Paul is an idiot. Uh, and then <laughs> you saw in the break coming back a story about a person you do not know about, Abraham Bolden. And Val, the reason why I sort of glommed onto this story is that uh, it shows how Black folks can't catch a break anywhere. Abraham Bolden was the first black Secret Service agent on a presidential detail for John Kennedy. He was there in Dealey Plaza when Kennedy was assassinated. And he started trying to tell people about how lax a lot of the Secret Service agents were and some of the other problems. He was a whistleblower. And so this is 1964 before whistleblower protections. And Lo and behold, Abraham Bolden not only loses his job, but he ends up going to prison, Val. And he goes to prison, and but he gets out, and he spends the rest of his life trying to explain why he should not have gone to jail. But he also becomes a community activist in Chicago and keeps kids out of your gangs and stuff. Exemplary life, nothing bad that you can say about him other than this one thing. Well, Joe Biden pardons Mr. Bolden uh, at the beginning of May. And nobody knows about this story except for people in Chicago. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I I just wanted to, again, you being a historian, did you know about Abraham Bolden? And two, 
if you did or even if you didn't, does it surprise you at all? Well, I didn't know a lot about Abraham Boland in the beginning, but uh, it doesn't surprise me uh, simply because, as you mentioned in your piece, uh, he was the first and he was expendable. Uh, he, he, and there was a lot of uh, actions and reactions in government during that time frame that basically asked or said, the nerve of you. We allow you to come in and be a part of this, and now you have the temerity to set up and challenge who and what we are and how we do it. Get out of here. You're fired, you know? And that's basically uh, how it went during those times. So he had to be very bold, very brave to do what he did to try to make things better and to point out uh, laxities and problems within the administration, uh, within the organization that he worked for. Uh, and to be treated that way is problematic. You, you also mentioned, we talked off mic about Obama knew him. He was from the Chicago area. And the question comes up in some people's mind, why didn't Obama uh, pardon him? Well, the answer to that question is one of the first measures that the Obama administration took into consideration with before they made any decision is how does this play into people saying, aha, I told you if we let him in, this is what the first black president was going to do. So everything they did, they had to back off a little bit for fear of people saying he did that because he was black or he did this because of some issue having to do with race. Uh, and I could go into some other examples of that, but I'll just leave it at that point. But it is really amazing how it took this long for uh, Bolden's uh, circumstances to be re uh, recognized and finally, to receive what he should have received a long time ago, that's a part. Yeah, well, yeah, you colored folks. You, uh, the Obama administration a lot of times seemed to be afraid to uh, even appear to be reaching out to colored folks in a way that would make white people uncomfortable, uh, yes. which, which, which is uh, not surprising. Again, I'm never surprised by anything, Val, when it comes to race in America. We, we're just... We're just uh, incapable of dealing with it and 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 i i, I there's a i can't remember the name of the book now but uh it, it talks about when the people started even identifying races of people uh and, and it goes back all the way to 1619 in in united states and that you know uh in virginia to to really get this slave thing kicked off and all that they had to categorize people and that had not really been done in terms of color before. And so it made it convenient. And so Abraham Bolden uh, is the uh, unlucky uh, recipient of the punishment that you receive for being a black man. And, and it, it, that starts all the way back in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia, when somebody decides to write it down that uh, Negroes uh, don't have any rights and can be owned and can't ever get out of indenture like white people can. Uh, 
and, 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 and people don't think about that. And, you know, when we talked about milk last week and baby formula, uh, you know, and how blackness uh, worked against us. Uh, but we're not the ones who, ma who made that up. White folks did. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I wish Abraham Bolden all the best. And I hope his last years are uh, he's able to sleep at night much better knowing that this weight is off of him, that he's been pardoned. But we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about some other people that should be in jail, though. Uh, uh, Peter Navarro uh, was uh, and still is an idiot. Uh, he was a aide to Donald Trump. And for some reason, he thinks that he can go on TV, he can write books and all that, but he can't go before the 1-6 committee. Let's take a look at this video and let's talk about Mr. Peter Navarro. The breaking news this hour, a federal grand jury here in Washington has indicted the former Trump White House advisor, Peter Navarro, on criminal contempt of Congress charges. The indictment stems from Navarro's refusal to cooperate with the House January 6th committee and its investigation of the Capitol insurrection. Let's get straight to our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Paula, tell us more. Well, John, this is not a big surprise because we know last week FBI agents uh, showed up to Navarro's home and served him with a subpoena, specifically asking him to provide to a grand jury documents related to his refusal to comply with the House Select Committee, including any communications that he had had with former President Trump or his lawyers. Now, Peter Navarro has been very public about his efforts to undermine the outcome of the 2020 election. He was subpoenaed by the committee last February and refused to comply with that, citing executive privilege. The committee, though, at the time said, look, there's a lot of things we want to talk to you about that you've spoken about pub publicly, you have published in your book, and that would not be covered by executive privilege. The okay, Val. So knock on the door, FBI, Mr. Navarro, here's a you know, warrant uh, subpoena and uh, you need to appear in court. So they they, they haul him into federal court and, and he's been indicted for not cooperating with the 1-6 committee and not cooperating with Congress. There's two, there's another person that from North Carolina, Mr. Mark Meadows, who did not get the knock on the door, but he turned over a lot of material, a lot of text messages that we've seen that indicate that there was shenanigans going on, not only on one six, but leading all the way up to one six, where they had these wacky plans to try to overturn the election. So first, let's start with Peter Navarro. He gets indicted. What happens here? Is 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 he and the and Steve Bannon ever going to see a day in court? And if they do, will it make any difference? I don't think so, Ed. Uh, I think the foot dragging starts right now. And I think it will be dragged out all the way uh, until March 3rd of 2023. March 3rd of 2023 is when the 118th Congress is seated. That's when they take their oath based on the election of November the 8th of 2022. And who knows? We're in the 117th Congress right now. Who knows what the 118th Congress is going to do about the 1-6 committee? I'm on the side that says if McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House, the 1-6 committee goes bye-bye and everything along with it. 
So if the foot dragging can go on until March 3rd of 2023, we have a whole new world. We have a whole new set of rules. We have a whole new dictionary. Things don't mean the same that they used to mean anymore. It's a whole new way of looking at things if MacArthur becomes the next Speaker of the House. And I could go on to talk about a lot of things that are going to be different if he becomes Speaker, but let's just stay on Peter Navarro right now. He and Mark Meadows and some of the other people that we could name, I think their strategy is singular. Their strategy is to drag their feet and hold things off until March 3rd. They'll be going to court, some of these courts that are manned by district and appellate judges appointed by Mitch McConnell, put on the uh, bench by Mitch McConnell. Uh, and uh, they'll give stays and they'll do all of these other kinds of things trying to get to March 3rd. So let's see what happens here. Yeah, you know, I almost wore my Mitch McConnell shirt today. Um, you know, I have the one with Mitch McConnell says leadership, doing whatever Trump tells you to do. Uh, you know, uh, but I think you're, you're right about the fact that these judges are the unknown in, in this case. Uh, I mean, obviously they've been able to affect the Supreme Court in a way uh, that slants it completely to the right. Right. And so now if you go to court uh, in some of these, you know, federal courts, will they even allow this case to move uh, along for Bannon or Navarro? Will they give them a lot of deference? Uh, I don't expect very much help from the Supreme Court because you got people like Clarence Thomas who have a vested interest in the truth not coming out. Val, you know, uh, it just makes me think, you know, it just popped in my head. Clarence Thomas is 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 probably uh, the one who leaked this stuff about the Roe versus Wade decision, <laughs> or his wife. Uh, Clarence Thomas is is the one who knows what happened on one six, but won't recuse himself. Clarence Thomas is the one who now, after all those years of sitting there like a knot on a log, now talks in court. I think because. They have a majority and he feels emboldened to say the dumb things that he wants to say. Clarence Thomas is the one who I think will have a lot of impact on whether or not any of this one six stuff actually moves anywhere if it ever gets to the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, that's my rant against uh, Clarence Hanky Head Thomas today. Uh, here's here's another part to this, Val. Uh, uh, there was a, it was a trial going on, Mr. Sussman. Uh, he was an attorney for the Clinton campaign. Uh, take a look at this uh, clip and then we'll talk about that. Michael Sussman, a former lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign, was found not guilty on Tuesday of lying to the FBI. Prosecutors had contended that Sussman made a false statement to investigators in hopes of orchestrating an October surprise against Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential race. Sussman says he is, quote, grateful to put the ordeal behind him. So, so Val, Mr. Sussman goes to the FBI and says, look, hey, uh, here's some information about Alpha Bank. Alpha Bank is a Russian bank. It was one of the few places that Donald Trump could borrow money from. 
And he says, I'm not sure what's in here, but you may want to look at it. And so the FBI says, okay, fine. They look at it and they do pretty much nothing with it, right? Uh, they, they couldn't make any serious connections. They don't know if there's any real thing. It does not lead to all the other investigations into Trump and his possible ties to Russia, but the right had glommed onto that. In addition to that, before Donald Trump leaves, they appoint this special prosecutor, uh, Mr. Durham, who is the prosecutor for uh, Connecticut. He's a federal prosecutor. And supposedly this Sussman case was going to be this big bombshell, smoking gun that revealed that Hillary Clinton was spying on Donald Trump. He was acquitted. What do the Republicans say about that? Well, what they say is that, oh, it's because it was in D.C. The trial was in D.C. But Val, I, I guess is is I already know the answer. Well, uh, but why does the prosecutor have a strong enough case to sway the jury? Why are you blaming it on the jury and not the prosecutor or the evidence in this case? Well, you know, when you get in an argument with Republicans uh, uh, asking sane questions and expecting sane answers, you're going to get a big disappointment uh, because they don't play by those rules. Uh, they don't play by those rules. Their thing is to get the job done, be damn reality, be damn truth, and that kind of thing. And if we are operating in a, a atmosphere of truth and reality and facts, we, we're in a different sphere than they are. So you can't communicate with them. You can't hold them down to anything. You can't do a thing. The only thing we can do sometimes, and I don't know if we play this card a little too much, we can make those third party people, and I think that's who we are talking to, or we are trying to influence. We can influence those third party people who maybe listen to our dialogue with the Republican, with the right winger, and he won't answer the question, or he gives lies and he does that. Maybe we can convince them that to take another look at their support of this guy and his goals and his missions and that kind of thing. But to deal with this guy, this Republican, this whatever, straight on expecting answers and thinking we done cornered him and he's got to either admit that he's been wrong all of this time or just melt away. Uh, they look at you and they laugh <laughs> and they say, I refute the notion that one and one equals two. And I'm prepared. Darn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wow. You know what? I, I hear music again. That means we got to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to talk about jobs, the jobs numbers uh, being what they are. We'll talk about that. And marijuana in North Carolina. Who would have thunk it? Uh, so stay right there. We'll be right back after this minute. All right, pal. Get ready for the day, buddy. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Do we have a gun? What's up? Do we have a gun?
What do you think? What's your take on this number that we just got? What's it mean for the equities market? What's it mean for investors writ large? Well, I, you know, I, we got to kill the canary and coal mine stuff. I mean, honestly, I mean, coal mine, what's really this is, is a leveling off. It's the beginning of what j Powell wants. Uh, it is not some sort of really dangerous thing because we have so many people who have been taken away from the labor force between COVID and the idea that we've really cooled, uh, tamped down on, on immigration. So I don't know, Becky. I mean, it's going to take a little time. And, but you're going to get 50 and then 50. And I think that Powell wins. And I think that people continually think that this guy's not, doesn't have his A game. And I think it's quite wrong. I like the number. I think it's perfect. Uh, and welcome back to our final segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, June 4th, 2022. Uh, we're talking about a bunch of stuff. We started out talking about guns, which seems to be a weekly recurring theme here. Uh, we talked about Charles Booker, who wants to be the senator from Kentucky, and his very, 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 very powerful visual ad uh, about lynching and one Rand Paul, who he's running against. We've talked about uh, Abraham Bolden, who was a Secret Service agent, the first black Secret Service agent in a presidential detail. Ended up going to jail because he tried to blow the whistle on his fellow agents and then finally being pardoned by Joe Biden. And then we just wrapped up with some legal cases that, that are winding this way that are related to 1-6 and also to Donald Trump. I hate saying that word, man. I, this makes me nauseous every time I say I get a little bit of throw up in my throat. Uh, but anyway, um, on the way back in, Val, uh, you saw Jim Cramer from CNBC talking about the jobs numbers. And he said that he's okay with the job numbers. It actually makes him feel good and and that, you know, the Jay Powell uh, and the Federal Reserve and all those people are doing, you know, what, what needs to be done. And then you see the ticker up there. And I put that one up there on, pur on purpose because there were a lot of places that talked about the jobs numbers being good. And people in the workforce and that there's not enough people to fill jobs and so on and so forth. But what it always makes me think about, Val, is how just jacked up the American economy is in terms of what we think is the right thing to do. People like Jim Cramer and those people who talk about stock market all the time want you to think that people running equity funds and hedge funds and all that stuff drive the economy. That how much money they have in their bank account, usually in the hundreds of millions and sometimes billions, is a bellwether indicator of how people are living and they don't care about gas prices. They don't care about anything other than the market year over year growing so they can get rich off of fees and all kind of other stuff. That's just the truth. The other part of it is when we talk about jobs numbers. So that's where I want to go first, Val. Uh, unemployment or what employment is in America. I can look out the window here and I see restaurants all across the street from me. And, and salaries have gone up for some of those people. But there are apartment buildings here, Val, in the same eye view that I have, where the base rent for the cheapest apartment is $1,900 a month. Who can live off of $15 an hour, if that's the wage that they're paying, and a $1,900 a month loft apartment? Not a one-bedroom, a loft. That's one room. How, and that's in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
And just imagine if you were in other places in America. So when you hear these people talk about jobs numbers and, and whether or not people should go back to work and blah, 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 what, what do you, how do you, how do you even make sense of this? Cause you can't live off $15 an hour Vale, not here. It's going to be very, very difficult. It's like there's two economies out there. You talk about, you know, the equity fund guys and the hedge fund guys and that kind of thing. Uh, they they have a different reality almost. Uh, they look upon things so differently than we do that you can't really use the same yardstick, I would say. Uh, you know, you go down and you talk about things like taking your significant other out for a meal. These guys don't understand money. They don't even tip anymore. This is how wealthy they are. They know that whatever the bill is, a certain percentage, sometimes as high as 100% of the final bill goes as a tip to the weight personnel uh, with another piece to the maitre d. This is automatic. They never see any of that. That's a contract between the facility the and, and uh, the workers and the accountant, the personal accountant of this rich guy. He, he just, all he does is say, I want to go to Del Frisco's and I want to have the medium rare fillet. That's all he says. Everything else is done. Nobody knows that his party of six is going to be dropping a total of $30,000 for everything that happens that day. Can you imagine that there are people out here, Ed, that are making less than $30,000 in a whole year? One year, this guy spends in one night. I mean, I, I give that example because that's how separate and apart these people, these rich folks live from average Americans that are living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. This whole thing about inflation, this whole mess about recession, uh, about the dollar being tied to gold or not being tied, what is full employment? Some people say 4%, we've been at 3.6 for a long time. That means everybody's got a job, I guess. And those kind of, it means nothing to the guy that's out there struggling. It means absolutely nothing when his daughter comes home and said, Pop, I need an extra $120 for my chemical lab fee starting next week. And he's trying to figure out where he's going to get it because he just got enough money to buy groceries for that week. That's all he's got and put gas in his car. Uh, that's reality, Ed, that these other hedge fund people that you're talking about really they have no idea what that reality is about. Yeah. But we keep playing that game because we say this is the place to get rich in the world. It is America. Well, you know, the, the problem with it, Val, is like you said, uh, their story ends up being the story that gets played over and over on the news. And that's what influences the election because you got some guy sitting in a trailer in Kentucky. Let's just go back to Kentucky since we were talking about Kentucky politics today. 
who's sitting in Kentucky, who has voted for Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul over and over again. People who could actually do something for them, but they won't. They'll do something for themselves. In the case of Mitch McConnell, he's done it for his wife, who is part of a family that all those damn containers that you see uh, shipped overseas from overseas from China, her family owns a lot of that. And they, they are multimillionaires. He's concerned about them, but he has to convince regular Kentuckians that they need to vote for Republicans who keep them in the situation they're in, in the trailer park. Instead, they do what Rand Paul does and try to make it that it's cause of colored people. That's your problem. Or brown people coming across the border that are being employed by white people to work at a very cheap wage to build these buildings. Again, I'm looking across the street, Val, and I see some scaffolds going up and I see some cranes and I'm looking at this job site and I don't see any black person on this job site. I see all Hispanic people, not that they shouldn't be working or they can't have a job, but did you hire them? No, you didn't. Uh, I look at the sign and it says Kane construction. Kane is a multimillionaire billionaire who's a friend of Donald Trump, but everybody on the job site is Hispanic. There's not a black person to be seen out here. And we live and we're, I'm in Wake County, North Carolina right now with a population that has 25% black people, not a single black person on the construction site. So you mean to tell me that, you know, so, so when we talk about the economy and jobs and where uh, people are and in and where they can live and all that kind of stuff, there is no way that you can get a job working in a restaurant or, or doing some of these service jobs that I'm looking out the window at that could afford to live in this area where this construction is going on. And then in the most places in America, we don't have decent transportation to get to a job if you lived anywhere outside. What are we creating here in America then? We're creating an autocracy, right? A oligarchy that, that runs everything and convinces you that life is miserable for you because of other people, but not the rich people that sit up in like Jim Cramer and who worry about stock price. And I guess that's my preaching for today. I, I'll leave it at that because we need to talk about one other story, Val. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about marijuana. And let's look at this clip and then we'll talk about marijuana. Changing times in North Carolina. Yesterday, Republican senators approved Medicaid expansion after saying no for 10 years. Today, it's medical marijuana, an issue that couldn't get so much as a hearing for nearly 20 years, sails through the Senate in a 35 to 10 vote. This is not like a wacky weed bill for people who just want to blaze and relax on the weekends. This is a bill that is for people who are really suffering. North Carolina's Compassionate Care Act provides marijuana only for those diagnosed with a, quote, debilitating medical condition, such as cancer, epilepsy, and post-traumatic syndrome. I think it doesn't go far enough and that it does leave out, it will leave medical cannabis far too far out of reach for a lot of North Carolinians that are suffering from pain and addiction. Governor Cooper has already signaled his support for medical marijuana, making the North Carolina House the final hurdle. So Val, uh, now uh, 
one of the things that was interesting in the clip, the Republican representative said, well, it's just not about wacky weed or whatever, uh, which was an interesting way to frame this. So, because it's not in North Carolina, this is about medical marijuana. So I guess you got to start somewhere. And, and, and uh, at the beginning of the story, they also talked about the fact that Medicaid expansion passed in the North Carolina Senate too. Two things that you would have never thought would have passed. So I need for you to deconstruct for me why right now the Republicans seem that okay with getting those two things passed in the Senate. They still got to get through the North Carolina House. But Medicaid expansion and medical marijuana, why did the Republicans tackle that or allow that to go through? Because they could have done it 20 years ago. Well, they have a little fear. Uh, that the demographics are changing just a little bit in North Carolina, and they don't know how things are going to come out in November uh, with this election, and they want that they don't want to have two or three "quote unquote" monkeys on their backs going into that election in the fall. Uh, they don't want uh, uh, the Democrats to get on their uh, left flank, as it were and talk about what they ain't doing or what they didn't do. So they're just covering their bases and they, they could care less whether it passes or not. As a matter of fact, they hope it doesn't, but they can still say that, well, we, we supported it, okay? You know, uh, and that sort of thing. It's the house that didn't do it, right? We did our part over here. So let's let the leadership stay like it is in the Senate, it, it's all political. And we'll have to see how that happens. But I'm hoping it, it, as, as, as a personal kind of position that we do do something about the expansion of Medicaid and we do pass medical marijuana. Uh, we have a really big opioid problem in North Carolina. And uh, I think over time, not overnight, but over time, medical marijuana could have some favorable impact on our opioid problems. Uh, and of course, anything that can be done to expand Medicaid, Medicaid uh, would be fantastic. There's a lot of options out there that people aren't eligible for now because we don't have an expansion of Medicaid uh, in North Carolina. So uh, things are looking up. We'll see how it works. It reminds me of years and years ago, Ed, when we were sitting around talking, we were on our radio terrestrial talk show uh, debating whether or not we would have a lottery here in North Carolina. Same thing, whether it has come to pass. Oh, we can say the same thing about medical marijuana and uh, Medicaid expansion. Yeah, the, and, the, and the world didn't explode whenever the lottery passed, like right. a, lot of, a lot of the Republicans were making out. You, you know, Val, uh, I, I, I do wish this Medicaid expansion goes through. Like you said, there's, there's a lot of people who are still falling through the cracks because we don't have universal health care. You know, uh, uh, I think a lot of times, you know, we sit back and uh, we constantly criticize everybody else in the rest of the world, but they don't have some of the same problems we have. Not that there's not problems in the rest of the world and not that every country is great. Uh, I'm not sure we're as great as we make out to be because we can't get a hold of things like uh, taking care of people when they're sick and paying a decent wage so you don't starve. And uh, I see in more and more increasingly 
uh, homeless people standing on the corner uh, and also people who are affected by this opioid thing that need treatment, need care, whatever, that are not going to get it uh, because we don't have the mechanism here in the United States. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, so before we run out of time, guess what? Got to do what we always do, Val. What are you working on? What do we got to look forward to? You can tell me something good, anything at all. Well, I am still, we're still rewriting or writing a second edition of Distractions. And uh, we're looking forward to that being published in the very, very near future. And I'll keep everybody updated. Uh, where we are on that, but it's uh, looking good right now. And as always, we tell people to tune in on Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for either Connections or Talk Back on Foxy 107, 104. And yeah. that's where we'll be. There you go. Hey, you know what? Uh, I, I need for people, I, I need for you to subscribe on whatever platform it is that you, you use, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, it doesn't matter. Uh, on our website, uh, thedealwithedclark.com, read my stuff. Uh, please pass it along. We're trying to build an audience here. One of the things we do that's different, I think, than a lot of uh, programs, Val, is that we try to deal dig a little bit deeper. I mean, we could talk about D.L. Hughley and Monique, I suppose, right? But, I mean, you know, that's not gonna that's not going to change anything with the – children being killed at Uvalde or the, the folks in Topps grocery store uh, being killed by AR-15s. Uh, God bless those topics, but I mean, they just don't, ha We, you know, somebody else can talk about those. I'm not, I'm not going to downplay what they do, but we do something different here and we're proud of what we do. We've been doing it for a long time. Anyway, I hear some music again. That means it's time to get out of here. Uh, go do something good for somebody today. If you're in, in North Carolina like I am today, it looks beautiful outside. So get outside, do something with the family and the kids, and, and, and please be safe. And, uh, you know, hopefully we won't be back talking about gun violence again next week, but I suspect we might. All right. See you guys in, uh, next Saturday. Uh, thank you for watching the deal.